Wednesday in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to TenderFit Plus at tenderfitplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and I hope this Saturday finds you happier than a baby with three thongs. Now, none of our weekend stories are about crimes committed by people that I would consider awesome. But today's crimes were committed by a man who is particularly not awesome. In fact, I'd describe him as one of the most evil and vile creatures to ever walk the face of our great planet, which even as killers go, puts him in a very elite category of monster. So let's join Jessica Knoll as she walks us through a murderous three-week rampage that claimed the lives of at least three innocent people. Back in crime, in the year 1988, a man stands trial for murder, a trial that would ultimately end his own life, but not before he leaves a trail of blood across Idaho Falls amid the harsh winter of 1987. This is the story of spree killer Paul Ezra Rhodes. A columnist for the Idaho Statesman writes about the man at the center of this story and his crimes back in 2011. He says in part, quote, wherever you stand on the death penalty, it's impossible not to feel first for those who knew and loved Rhodes' victims. That, it seems, is simply a prerequisite to being a member of the human race. I cannot begin to imagine what they have endured for 24 years, nor would I ever want to. Paul Ezra Rhodes is born on January 18, 1957, in Idaho Falls. At four years old, he's diagnosed with polio. By the age of 10, he starts drinking, and eventually, his addiction to drugs begins, and he drops out of high school. As an adult, he becomes addicted to methamphetamine, and by the time he's 21, he starts breaking into homes. He's arrested and charged with numerous petty crimes and burglary throughout the 1980s. His sister describes him as quiet and considerate, who has had his problems like everyone else. But by 1987, those problems and his thirst for crime would turn lethal. Winter in Idaho Falls aren't for the faint of heart. Temperatures quickly drop as Jack Frost begins nipping at your nose. And February 1987 was no different. But the blustering temperatures outside would meet its match with the ice flowing through the veins of a man whose crimes are described as wicked and vile, shockingly evil, and designed to inflict a high degree of physical and mental pain with utter indifference to and with apparent enjoyment of the suffering. On February 28th, 21-year-old Stacy Dawn Baldwin, a newlywed, is working a late shift at the Red Mini Barn convenience store in Blackfoot. Just after midnight, 
Rhodes enters the store. He grabs Stacy and forces her into his truck at gunpoint. He drives to an isolated spot a few miles north of town. He tries to sexually assault her, but she fights back. Struggling for her life, she breaks away from his clutch on her. She falls to her hands and knees, trying to escape. And as she scrambles to get to her feet, Rhodes executes her, shooting her three times in the back and leaves her lying on the cold ground to die alone. And an hour and a half later, she's gone. The next morning around 9.30 a.m., Stacy is found just off the rural road at a secluded archery range. On March 16th, Nolan Hayden, a 20-year-old technical vocational school student, is working his night shift at Buck's Gas and Grocery Store in Idaho Falls. His brother Clay stops in for a quick visit. The brothers talk and cut it up with each other a bit before he heads home, leaving Nolan alone. But an hour later, another uninvited visitor, Rhodes, walks into the store and demands money from the young clerk. After robbing the store, he shoots Nolan five times and leaves him inside the store's walk-in cooler. The next morning, Nolan is found inside the walk-in cooler. He's still alive, but just barely. His spinal cord is severed from the gunshot wounds, and he's immediately taken to the Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center. But he dies just a few hours later. On the morning of March 19th, Susan Michaelbacher, a 34-year-old wife and mother of two-year-old son, is feeling under the weather. And while she calls in sick to work, the dedicated special education teacher goes to Eagle Rock Junior High School to leave some notes and lesson plans for the substitute. She leaves around 7 a.m. and heads to the grocery store for some hot cocoa. Someone is watching her, following her. Susan goes inside for her cocoa and Rhodes is close behind. As she returns to her van, Rhodes shoves his way in while dragging her inside with him at gunpoint. He forces her to cash two $1,000 checks at two bank locations. Then he drives her to a remote lava field just outside of town. And there he rapes Susan. Then he shoots her nine times. An all-out search ensues. Law enforcement, community members, co-workers, all looking for Susan. The next day, her van is found parked back at the grocery store parking lot in Idaho Falls. But the odometer has 200 more miles on it than when she left home yesterday morning. And the outside of the van has scratches on it that were not there before. On March 21st, still searching for the missing teacher, police conduct an aerial search. And a few miles outside of town in a rural area, they spot her body from above. Susan is found dead in a patch of sagebrush in a lava field. With a wad of stolen cash in his pocket, Road heads to Jackpot, Nevada to go on a gambling spree. But he takes his mom's car and she reports it stolen. Authorities track down her car after he runs it off the highway and gets it stuck in the dirt. The car is left abandoned. 
After locating the car, Idaho authorities head to Nevada with an arrest warrant on a grand larceny charge. However, upon arriving, they discover a 38 caliber handgun was recovered just outside his mother's stolen car. And inside the car was a box of bullets for the Smith & Wesson. Ballistics would match the weapon used to kill Susan Michael Bacher, Nolan Hayden, and Stacy Baldwin. On March 25th, at about 9.30 p.m., police find 30-year-old Rhodes sitting at a blackjack table in a casino about 20 miles from where he left his mom's car and fled on foot. As they secure the handcuffs around his wrists, he blurts out, I did it. Following his arrest, his sister, Vicki Rhodes, says, quote, He's our brother and we love him. I don't believe he could have done this. It's not in his nature. He had his problems, but everyone does. Just because you have problems doesn't mean you go out and kill someone. Paul Ezra Rhodes is charged with murder, kidnapping, rape, robbery, and desecration of a corpse for his crimes against Susan Michael Bacher, as well as five counts of firearm violations. For the crimes against Stacey Baldwin and Nolan Hayden, Rhodes is charged with additional counts of murder as well as another count of kidnapping and robbery. For each of the killings, he stands trial separately, beginning on January 18, 1988, for Susan Michaelbacher. A jury finds him guilty on all counts. On March 12, 1988, for the murder of Stacey Baldwin, he is found guilty on all counts. And on April 25th, for the murder of Nolan Hayden, he pleads guilty in exchange for a life sentence. By May 1988, Rhodes was sentenced to death twice for the murders of Susan and Stacy. And for the next 24 years, he lives in a 7 by 12 foot cell on death row in the Idaho Maximum Security Institution. On October 2011, Rhodes requests a clemency hearing in an attempt to commute his death sentence to life in prison without parole. In his request, he writes, Three people are dead because of me. I needlessly caused their deaths. My actions, my crimes, my responsibility. I cannot erase their loss and the pain they suffered because of my crimes, nor can I take away the pain endured by each of their family members. But his request for a clemency hearing is denied. And when all appeals, hearing requests, and stay of execution pleas run out, so does the clock for Paul Ezra Rhodes. For the state of Idaho, this will be the first execution in nearly two decades. And prior to that, the last execution was in 1957 and was done so by hanging. In October 2011, a judge signs Rhodes' death warrants. Because as the local sheriff said, quote, the case has come to its full destiny. And with that signature, Rhodes is moved from death row to a new cell across the hall from his final stop. Barbed wire lines the perimeter of a large cold fortress in the town of Kuna, Idaho. Armed guards peer over the campus from above in towers. No one in, no one out, unless they 
opened the chain-linked fence gates. The maximum security prison sits just outside of downtown Boise in Kuna, and Kuna means the end of the trail. And for 54-year-old Paul Ezra Rhodes, it is. Inside, there's a freshly painted room, an unused, untouched, sterile room. It's empty, except for a white gurney, illuminated by fluorescent lighting. It's bolted down to the clear plexiglass affixed to the gray carpeted floor. Attached is an armrest on each side with black straps and another black strap at the top. It's quiet, calm, still. Everything is new and clean as it was built just for him. After all, he will be the first to step inside and onto this untouched gray carpet. He'll be the first to lay down and be strapped by his arms and chest to this gurney. And he will be the first to breathe his last breath inside these four walls, the execution chamber. Friday, November 18th, 2011. Protesters stand outside, braving the freezing early morning temperatures outside the prison. They hold signs indicating their distaste for the death penalty. Signs that read, cruel and unusual punishment, and execute justice, not people. Inside, four windows separate roads on the gurney and the gallery where his victim's family members sit, waiting for their nightmare to end, now nearly a quarter of a century later. And in another smaller viewing room off to the side, his mother, Pauline Rhodes, sits. Just two days earlier, she released the following statement ahead of her son's scheduled execution. It stated, quote, We are very sorry for what happened to the victims. We know there is nothing we can say or do to console their families or understand the pain they have endured all these years. We also realize how tough it must be for them to be reminded of the crimes whenever Paul's case makes the news and that they might be angry that Paul is still alive while their loved ones are not. Strapped to the table, lying down, Rhodes is anxious, incessantly tapping his fingers on the gurney. And then, in a clear, booming voice, he speaks directly towards the four panels of glass. He says to Susan's family, Stacy's family, and Nolan's family, quote, To Bert Michaelbacher, I am sorry for the part I played in your wife's death. For Hayden and Baldwin, I can't help you. You still have to keep looking. I'm sorry for your family. I can't help you. I took part in the Michaelbacher murder. I can't help you guys. I'm sorry. And to his mother, Pauline, he simply says, goodbye, before turning to face the warden and the executioner saying, I forgive you. I really do. After hearing these words project from his mouth, Stacy Baldwin's brother whispers, he lied the whole way through. And Nolan Hayden's mother, Julie, calls him a coward. Paul Ezra Rhodes' deadly spree across his hometown of Idaho Falls 
spanned nearly a month in the winter of 1987. More than 20 years later, justice for his victims surged through his veins, completing his death sentence in 22 minutes. He's pronounced dead at 9.15 a.m. And to that, a friend of Susan Michaelbacher says, the devil has gone home. This Day in Crime is a production of Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Today's episode is hosted and written by me, Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Todd McComas and I are co-executive producers. Our lead producer is Dennis Cooper. The episode is edited and sound designed by Dayton Cole. John Street and Tracy Kaplan are the supervising producers, along with additional production by Sean Nurney and Jordan Foxworthy. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. The cover art is by Byron McCoy and Isabella Maxey. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and The Nord Group. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. If you enjoy this podcast, Please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. See you next Saturday. Thanks for listening to this episode of This Day in Crime. The show is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, Subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. 